Sorry I was late, though. I was grabbing, um, uh, let's see, all sorts of sound effects. I've got the record scratching. I've got the sad trombone. Uh, I've got a new pronunciation 101. I think we're going to have a great, great podcast. Hopefully there's some content, too, but I got all the whistles and maybe some bells. Uh, I'm excited, really, for the whistles and bells and sad trombones. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned to the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division III football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. And my co-host, Keith McMillan, has been here since uh, well before anybody ever said the word podcast. Isn't that right, Keith? Yeah, I guess technically that's true. We were just uh, two guys on a, a wild internet trying to wrangle whatever was going on in D3. Two guys, no girl, no pizza place, but lots of 80s and 90s references. And uh, I'm going to go back even more centuries for this one now because, uh, Keith, I come not to bury the Warhawks but to praise them. Or maybe I need to give unto the Warhawks what is the Warhawks and give to the Titans what is the Titans. But regardless, Keith, I'm going to start this podcast with what might be a controversial statement. And finally, I'm going to call the UWW dynasty time of death. 4 p.m. September 30th, uh, 2017. And I say this, even though we've talked on this podcast uh, about what a big challenge the Warhawks had this season, starting with four consecutive road games, three of them against ranked teams. Regardless, Keith, a dynasty, an active purple power, finds ways to win those first two games rather than lose them. I can abide by losing to Oshkosh, but uh, even then, not by a 37-20 margin. UWW and UWO played three games the past two years, and not one game was further apart than three points. In the immortal words of Patrick Herward on a long, long ago D3Football.com Game of the Week broadcast, stick a fork in them. I think they're done. Uh, well, my first thought is uh, that reference is so old that I don't even remember Patrick Herward. <laughs> he went by Rick Herward then. He was uh, Pat, Cummings, uh, Pat Cummings' color guy for WDCV Radio. All right. Anyway, back on topic. Uh, people that follow Whitewater closely, I think, are concerned, and it looks like for good reason. But Whitewater survived a three-loss season before and bounced back, so I'm a little more hesitant than you are to say the the dynasty is over, or at least that they won't be back. Uh, this season certainly shot uh, as far as playoffs go, but you got games against ranked Platteville and Stout. Lacrosse is still unbeaten, so this isn't the last time we'll mention them. It's still a program with the weight of history on its side when it when it goes recruiting. You go to the the Perkins Stadium and and they have a, a whole wall with with the championships on there. It's real and you know you go in the building and there's trophies and um, you know people have heard of Whitewater from being on ESPN and they may not have heard of some of the other schools uh, that are recruiting them when when you're dealing with you know 17 year olds and 16 year olds uh, I guess 18 year olds too who are, who are um, mostly familiar with the teams that are on TV. Whitewater can get in that discussion. So I do think they still have a, a chance to build back what um, what it once was or at least be a, an every other year kind of uh, elite program. But I think now it's evident that the exodus of, of coaches along with Lance Leipold to Buffalo, which, by the way, is 3-2 and two and first in the MAC East, uh, I hit that program pretty hard. Yeah, I think the genesis of this downfall is because of the number of coaches in that exodus. Of the numbers of coaches. I see what you did there. Uh, I got no Deuteronomy joke to work in there for you, though. Sorry. No Leviticus? Nothing. That would have been... Give me the hard ones. <laughs> anyway, I could put Genesis in. I don't know. Well, you set me up for Exodus. I could not take it. it. I mean, it was such a great week of games, though. Um, 
led by the Whitewater Oshkosh game, but also, you know, we need to chop it up about Whitworth Linfield, Wheaton, um, Illinois Wesleyan, and a bunch of, of really significant or semi-significant games in conference races from Wittenberg and Denison all the way to, um, uh, I don't even know which other ones I really like. <laughs> well, oh, or sinus and Johns Hopkins. That, that's a big one. <laughs> there you go. That was a game of some import. So just to touch on the, the Oshkosh uh, Whitewater game in general, Oshkosh 589 yards of, of total offense. Um, you know, Whitewater with just 13 first downs compared to 31 for Oshkosh. Whitewater did get back into the game. They were down 23, uh, seven about uh, midway through the third quarter. Uh, got back into it, cut it to three early in the fourth. Uh, but then a big pass from Brett Casper to Sam Mankowski, not the first one of the day either. Uh, this one, only 53 yards. The first was a school record 96. That made it 30-20. to 20. Uh, And then there was another uh, interception uh, thrown by Cole Wilbur, and uh, Oshkosh cashed that in for another seven. And so uh, the preponderance of it, if you kind of take the grand scheme and kind of plot out the time of the game, Whitewater was not in the game for a significant portion of it. Yeah, and I think that is stark when you look at their three losses this season. The Illinois Wesleyan loss, the, the better Illinois Wesleyan does, the less, um, I don't know, embarrassing. It was never an embarrassing loss at the time, but the less significant that loss looks. Same thing with Concordia Moorhead, especially as uh, as the Cobbers get ready to play St. Thomas this coming week. You know, In hindsight, those, those losses could look not that bad. And same thing with Oshkosh being a top three team right now. But as you mentioned, the way this one happened, it was not close. It was not like really the history of of recent Whitewater Oshkosh games where they're tooth and nail down to the, uh, you know, the final quarter or final drive. In some cases, this one was uh, was was Oshkosh early, as you mentioned, the 16-0 lead, 23-7 lead and and really pulling away as you know, it was close. It got it was close at one point. In the fourth, 23-20, and any game that's within one score in the fourth, it can be considered a close game. But I don't know if if, if Oshkosh really was ever in danger in this one. Uh, you mentioned the 2012 season, the year in which they went 7-3, and three, and before I got all amused with my knowledge of the first five books of the Old Testament, I was going to talk about the fact that uh, in that season, you know, they lost that... Uh, you know, that kind of a fluky finish of the game against uh, Buffalo State, 7-6. to six. Although, again... Well, to rehash five years ago, uh, you you got to score more than six points. And then they lost two conference games. This is different, Keith. They already have three losses, and they still have six conference games left. And, you know, you mentioned some of the things that are ahead on their schedule, some big challenges. Yeah, and, and at this point, in, in some ways, they're spoiler. But if you're trying to build the program back to what it was, and you, and you can acknowledge that this year your goals are are – more or less shot unless the conference race gets wacky. And I guess with the with the number of good teams in the WIAC, it, it could. But, I mean, you, you know, you get to the point where three losses is is an off season. Uh, you know, some schools, that's a great season. Seven and three is right now be- the best Whitewater can do. At this point, it's a stretch to get to seven and three because there, there's there's quite a bit of uh, – uh, they're pretty much everybody except for, for Eau Claire and, and maybe River Falls, Stevens Point. At this point, everybody in the WIAC – is off to a great start. One of the other games we wanted to talk about is that uh, game out west between Linfield and Whitworth. Keith, you and I had been kind of nudging, nudging, sometimes pushing, sometimes shoving Whitworth 
up our rankings, and Whitworth had certainly looked good for the through the first three weeks. And and for Linfield, you know, we had definitely some questions about what it was they actually had this season. I think in part because they just hadn't played very many games. But uh, in this case, uh, the Linfield defense really showed up and showed up in force. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of played this game with myself, like how many Linfield players can I name? Because I hadn't watched them much uh, so far this season. They only had two games. One was the the Mary Harden-Baylor game. The other was against Chapman. Um, they lost almost all their significant or their their big name players from uh, from a season ago, and and they'd been you know deep playoff run team for the past several seasons, and and this was one of the years where they had to uh, reload. And this was the it's obviously not the first big test because the Mary Harden-Baylor game. Um, was was a huge test for them, and they didn't pass. That was a 24-3 game. But it's so hard to judge where Linfield falls because there's no shame in losing to the defending national champions. So we're ch- kind of trying to figure out, is Linfield pretty good? Are they in danger of maybe not even being the best team in the NWC? They answered that question pretty emphatically on Saturday. I don't think the game was quite as... Um, Distant or, or as, as you know, the margin was the margin looked a lot worse on on paper than it um, than it really was because Whitworth was driving, um, but ended up having to settle for field goals three times on, on drives of eight plays or longer. A uh, couple of of interceptions turned into uh, return touchdowns, and, and Linfield really pulled away. But at the same time, aside from it being a seven six game early in the second quarter. Linfield, you know, turned it to to twenty one six at the half, and really was was never in danger in the second half. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I've heard from coaches is that if you're in a situation where twice in a row you settle for field goals early, uh, especially after maybe after the other team has scored a touchdown, that's a recipe for a long day, and it, it really did turn into that. Um, I listened to a significant portion of this game. Um, Ended up not paying the $12 uh, like I had uh, thought that I might. Um, so I listened to a, a good part of this game. And, yeah, I mean, they 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 didn't uh, – Colsey didn't have a didn't have time to throw, didn't have time to throw a lot downfield. Uh, they picked him off three times, as you said. Two of them were pick sixes. A couple times they had to settle for field goals. Um, and the Linfield is interesting right now. Um, if you have to – uh, if 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 one of those or two of those players you can name are the quarterbacks, right? Troy Fowler and Aiden Wilder, who both have roles on this team right now. That's uh that's an interesting dynamic as well. And I, I think they're, you know, Linfield is still figuring some stuff out on offense, but I don't think there's a lot for them to have to figure out on defense. They're definitely firing. Yeah, I mean it was a pretty pretty um, good performance on Saturday, especially when you look back at at what Whitworth has done scoring wise coming into uh, the game. And then it also helps you put the, the Mary Harden-Baylor game in context. Remember, that was that was 24-3, but it, it, there was no point where Mary Harden-Baylor um, dominated offensively in that game. So I, I think you're looking at potentially a pretty pretty good Linfield defense. And then you get to the – you're now at the point in Linfield's schedule where um, after this you know, huge first month where you play – uh, the number one team in the nation and probably your number one challenger in your conference, although uh, uh, George Fox is looking pretty stout as well. You just look at the rest of, of Linfield's schedule. They don't have to leave the Pacific Northwest. And um, 
really besides George Fox, I don't know who else in that conference is going to even give him a push. So this is the point where Linfield, you know, you have fun with your season. Obviously, you you play every week. You you know, you want to win. You want to stack wins together. But as far as Linfield potentially being what it always is, this is when now that team refines its offense, uh, gets its players some experience, and more than likely, although it's certainly possible they could stumble, if you're just judging off how they looked against Mary Harden Baylor two weeks ago and and Whitworth on Saturday, you say this is probably going to be a playoff team and and just keep an eye on them for the next seven weeks to see how they uh, how they evolve. You mentioned that Mary Harden Baylor uh, didn't uh, really put that game away or didn't put that game away offensively earlier in the season. We'll talk a little bit later in the podcast about what the Mary Harden Baylor offense looks like right now. But uh, one other game from uh, from Saturday that uh, really want to talk about is uh, one that came down to the wire between number nineteen Illinois Wesleyan, number five Wheaton. Uh, Illinois Wesleyan hadn't won at Wheaton since 1986, uh, and they did so on the last play of the game on Saturday, defeating the uh, the Thunder by a score of 14 to 10. Before we talk about the particulars of the game, I want to talk about how the game ended. Um, I suppose that's one of the particulars of the game. But uh, if you've seen questions, discussion, debates, uh, photo screenshots thrown around about whether that uh, whether that final catch was actually uh, brought in by Zach Walsh. Uh, there's certainly there's some probably some fair questions about that. We're not going to have uh, we we tried to search search down video with two camera angles in Division three. We're not going to get uh, anything that's super useful about the uh, uh, about the corner of the far end zone. Uh, the end zone camera was blocked out by the uh, by the upright, and the other camera was about uh, 175 yards away or something. It seemed like. That aside, a couple of things to consider. First of all, let's say Zach Walsh's catch is ruled not a catch. Uh, there's a, there's still a flag on Wheaton. Illinois Wesleyan has a uh, has a final down from um, wherever that would end up being on the uh, on the after the penalty was assessed. They would have a free play even before that play started. Wheaton had uh, called a timeout on the previous play. Uh, the timeout whistle and the timeout. The call came so late that the play was run and Illinois Wesleyan was sacked. And that was a play that would have ended the game as well because Illinois Wesleyan was out of timeout. So before we can even talk about whether you think that was a catch or not, dear fan, we have to accept all of these other things. That is not the end of the game regardless, or it could have been over a play earlier. Okay. Now that we've, I'm just trying to set the, uh, Set the playing field here. Set the board. Well, I think to me what um, what stands out for for Illinois Wesleyan is you know you look at that schedule at the beginning of the season. This is a team that we thought was um, lacking experience in some areas and and wasn't going to come on maybe until later in the season. You look at that schedule. Whitewater's your opener. Week three at North Central. Week five at Wheaton. To get out of that stretch, four and one, and now pretty much in control of uh, well, not in control of, of their own fate in the CCIW because North Central is in the lead, but uh, but in control of of potentially giving itself a pretty great case for being a a, a pool C at large playoff team. Five more games to go, but you look at them them the way they won uh, against Whitewater. 
goal line stop, storm in the field, the way they won against Wheaton, touchdown six seconds left, uh, quite a bit of excitement. And then even, you know, the North Central game, um, North Central beat them pretty well. Uh, the final was 26-13, but, but it, you know, that, that was another one of those games where they were in it, but North Central sort of pulled away at the end. I think for them, they they're in really great shape here, and um, these are not only they they have a chance to create a bunch of, of 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 memories going forward. Again, they potentially finish nine and one, have a playoff game, but these I think the Whitewater win and the Wheaton win are, are memories that those players cherish for a long, long time. You know what I look forward to, Keith. What's that? Not having to have a really long discussion about Wheaton in which we're trying to set something up before we can even have the conversation. Yeah. I mean, I guess if we're, if we're talking Wheaton now, you know, you really just because they've already they've already um, played Illinois Wesleyan. They've already played Carthage. Uh, it's really just that we're just looking at the little brass bell game for them. to you know, obviously they have to win week to week, but. The next big game for them, I think, from a national standpoint, is, is when they play North Central. Now, here's where I would have a sound effect of the little brass bell if I had a sound effect of the little brass bell. Mental note, sound effect for the little brass bell. It's I little. thought you said you had all the bells and whistles ready for this one. Dang it. I don't have that bell. It's a small bell. It's little. It's brass. And it's clearly one of the top two bells in D3. Only Take that, victory top. bell. Right. Boom. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. But we, we're clear on the number one bell. Okay. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I think that, yeah, uh, that's one thing we can uh, we can all agree. There's one number one bell. I can't think of a number four bell now. Yeah, I think your victory bell is, is your is your clear three in, in terms of bell seats. Who what knew is, you were going to get this bonus podcast bell rankings? <laughs> that's, that's right. It's, uh, it's uh, Bell Podcast 101. Um, what does the bronze turkey sound like when you ring it? I've never seen it. All I've heard is the great tales of it being stolen and returned 12 years later or turns up buried under the library or whatever the stories are. Oh, Keith, you missed a perfect opportunity to say something about the facts that uh, Knox hasn't seen it either. Oh. <laughs> I'm not wrong, though. No, nope, you're wrong, in but the, you're not wrong. <laughs> in the entire time that we've had a website. Um Johns Hopkins Ursinus. This is a game that uh, came down to the final play as well, or basically the final play. Um, it's, uh, let's see, 20 seconds remaining. Uh, Thomas Garlic, eight-yard scramble, game-winning touchdown. Ursinus wins at home 21-17, uh, basically takes the, four, the final 454 off the clock, or 454 of the final 514. For those who don't remember, uh, because Johns Hopkins has been at it for so long, it has been since... November of 2012 that Johns Hopkins lost either a regular season game or a centennial conference game 45 consecutive regular season wins 40 consecutive wins in the centennial conference and uh, you know Keith I, I think we uh, talked about um, Muhlenberg would, might be the team that do that or you know the way the beginning of the season go, maybe it'll be Franklin and Marshall and uh, Ursinus beat everybody to the punch the amazing thing about the, the finish in uh Ursinus and Johns Hopkins is that 13 play drive for uh, for Ursinus closes with the uh, with with the garlic touchdown rush uh, with 20 seconds left. That whole drive though, they only faced third down uh, a couple of times. I guess actually three times on the drive. Uh, one very early in the drive though, third and 15, uh, 16 yard pass, and then uh, tacked a penalty uh, personal foul onto that. So it ended up being a, a 31 yard 
gain for them that really got that drive going. They also converted a, uh, a third and two and a third and one later in the drive. So whenever you look at these super close games that are decided by a, a single drive, there are always a, a few plays that you can track back and say, like, if this 16-yard play doesn't happen on third and 15, the whole thing never gets rolling and John's Johns Hopkins wins and the narrative of them dominating Centennial continues. So, you know, you, you want your guys to be clutch. And, and that's an example of um, 16 yards. They always say, oh, run, you know, do you run your pattern to the sticks. And, you know, <laughs> finally, I guess clearly someone got one more yard than they needed uh, a couple times on that draft. So what's interesting now with, with that Ursinus win is I think it cracks the Centennial wide open because you have a handful of teams off to really good starts, and they all play each other next week. you got Franklin and Marshall and Muhlenberg, Ursinus and Johns Hopkins. So now what has generally been a one- or two-team race may be a four-team race. One of the things I wanted to mention about Johns Hopkins is that I think the reason why you and I have been in this position where we have been expecting something like this to happen to Johns Hopkins. This has just been so many times, year after year after year, where they have turned a bunch of guys over. And, you know, obviously, at some point, luck has to run out for a team. Not necessarily luck, but every once in a while, you've got a class that is maybe not quite ready to step in and perform at the exact same high level. It happens to all sorts of programs, not just uh, not just Johns Hopkins. And I think, uh, I, I guess I'm speaking for me uh, on that, but I wonder what you think in that regard. Well, I, the, the pro football cliche is the other guys get paid too, and clearly that doesn't quite apply here. But um, even when there's one dominant program in a conference or in a division, um, there are always other programs sort of nipping at the heels, and uh, some days it's it's just their turn. I mean, as we we talked, we traced it back to a couple times on on that final game winning drive. Or Sinus faces third down. You know, one play makes a difference in that game. And as a player, after games like that, you know, each player probably has a different play. But you're you're kicking yourself for something you did in the second quarter, or something you didn't do on the final drive, or there are always like a few, a handful of plays where you're like, ah. If that didn't happen, the whole game is different. The whole season, the narrative, everything's different. You know, people come in from out of town for these games, and everybody's all all sad on Saturday Saturday night. And if you just would have done one thing differently on one play early in the game, everybody would have been happy, and the season would be safe. So players do put a lot of pressure on themselves. Um, but sometimes it's it's really simple. I think it's simple as that. Sometimes it's the other team's day, and they've they. You know, it's so so cliche, but it's like, oh, they work hard too, and and um, it it really is true that both teams are kind of pushing for the same goal, and it's almost odd when it's the same team year after year, um, but teams are, are are really close to them, and in this case, you know, it it, it went or science's way on Saturday, but I think teams like that have to finish now, now that now that um they they have a chance to go ahead and 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 finish it out and win the conference. You still got to beat uh, a handful of teams left. I, like I said, I think it's going to be a four-way race in the Centennial. We've been talking a long time. We haven't had an opportunity to tell you that the podcast is sponsored by FanRays once again this weekend. We aren't even there yet. A couple more things that we want to mention up here at the top. Second wins in rapid succession for Grove City and for Lewis and Clark. For uh, Lewis and Clark, a, a second win. That's a big deal. Uh, a freshman... Obed Ariza kicked a 33-yard field goal as time expired to lead the Pioneers to a 24-21 win over Willamette. 
giving Lewis and Clark the wagon wheel for the first time since 2000, long enough ago that some of these current players were uh, toddlers the last time the Pioneers won. Let's hear how it sounded on Lewis and Clark's broadcast. For Cecil Fuentes, the holder, Dennis Kamakana, from the right hash mark, left-footed kicker, Obed Reason. A try of 33. Snap, placement, kick is up, on the way. It's good. <laughs> hey, Keith, there's more. You want to hear it? Uh, yes. All right, enough of that. Uh, let's see. The other game that was uh, that we're talking about, Grove City with the win, their second win here in a row. Uh, three interceptions for Grove City in the fourth quarter to preserve that 21 to 14 win against Waynesburg. Uh, you know, Grove City. I've almost forgotten. Was it 33 losses in a row? Uh, basically, have put that behind them now. Yeah, and and that's a program too where you have a, you have a coach who's come home to his alma mater and. Um, the transition was well planned out, and you, it's hard not to root for programs like that to, to get on their feet, and it's nice to see. Uh, unless you're close to one of the programs in the conference, I, I'm a sucker for team storm in the field, for teams that haven't won in a while, uh, finally getting a win or two wins or c- kind of having that um, – Joy of victory spread around, for lack of a better way to put it. And I know uh, Adam Turr, based on the, the column he wrote uh, not too long ago about uh, about Wilmington having that experience and, and, and some of the other teams, Sewanee and teams like that, that uh, he's kind of a sucker for the same stuff, too. So I imagine a lot of our readers and listeners are as well. Yeah, I would be perfectly happy if no team ever went 0-9, 0-10, 0-8. Um, I guess we don't have to worry about 0-11 at this level, huh? Um, one game that didn't happen this weekend is going to happen under the lights on Monday night. Washington and Jefferson and Teal. Pronunciation 101. Budavistic. Gallardi. Monon Belt. Budavistic. Monon. Clear. Teal. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Teal. They're going to play on Monday night. Uh, Teal had a, a basically a, a run of a, a uh, now I don't even remember an infection across campus and uh, canceled uh, all events, uh, including athletics. So basically, from about Thursday through Sunday, they managed to squeeze this game in. W and J is basically going to be playing two games this upcoming week, and uh, one of them is kind of a big one. Yeah, and that's a, you should really watch closely, especially if you're a, a follower of of the pack, to see how W and J manages uh, snap counts against Teal. I imagine if that game goes like you expect it would um, and they get up early, you, you may see them dial back on some of their best players, especially linemen and uh, or players who, who don't quite have the stamina because that game later in the week against Carnegie Mellon, which is uh, unbeaten right now, is going to be a pretty big deal for them. I know you picked Teal for uh, for pronunciation 101 this week, but I'd like to submit that Ursinus would have been a fine choice as well. Well, Lamet also. We've uh, we've kind of run the gamut here in just this uh, last couple minutes. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't burn all of them. I know there are 249 schools, but some of them, like North Central, are easy to pronounce, so we can't do pronunciation on all of them. 
El Norte Central. And this is the time in the podcast to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by FanRays. Uh, I know that some Division three schools have reached out to FanRays, really encourage uh, schools to continue to do so. Maybe this isn't the time of year where you're necessarily working on this stuff. Maybe you're working on your game plan for week six. But uh, just a reminder, FanRays is an e-commerce platform that uh, provides hassle-free team merchandise shops for athletics programs, and they are found at thefanrays.com. Online stores that cost nothing to set up, they never close, they're not this time-limited three-week-long thing where you have to get uh, all your parents, all your players, uh, your fans to get their orders in, and then you get to ship, you don't get to ship them all out. You would have to ship them all out if you were using somebody else. With FanRays, that's not a thing you have to do. Nope, they ship all the orders directly to customers. You never have to sort through or coordinate a bulk order again. Uh, FanRays increases fundraising for teams through the unmatched profit share model. And we certainly appreciate the support, especially if that support is coming. If, if people are hearing it on the podcast and visiting thefanrays.com, that's, what, that's basically uh, what we want to see. You can have over 125 unique pieces of apparel and accessories. When we set up our store, and I assume that that's where we're going because, well, I guess I'm the one who gets to make that decision. Uh, we're not going to have 125 unique pieces of apparel and accessories. Um, we're going to have maybe about six. I don't know, but you can have many. We might not need that many. You might need very, very many. So visit thefanrays.com today. It's time for game balls. And Keith, I'm giving my game ball this week to Pete Fredenberg. I'm not sure if either of us has ever given a game ball to a coach. But I'm going to get that started. First of all, uh, part Lifetime Achievement Award, but I think there's good reason to do so this particular week. First of all, I want to mention Coach Fred won his 200th game on Saturday night with a 44-10 win versus Southwestern, but I also like a key move that was made going into this week, and this is something I was referencing earlier. It's moving TJ Josie back to wide receiver. Whether Kyle Jones, the new quarterback, is outplaying Josie behind center or not, you and I have often talked, Keith, about what happens when you move a top playmaker behind center, and sometimes it can hurt you at two positions. Now, uh, here's the other thing. This move is being billed as Josie moving to wide out because of the injury to wide receiver Jonel Reed. I like this, too, because it doesn't imply that Josie struggled at quarterback, although he didn't have the greatest couple of games. One of those against Linfield, we may have mentioned, they're pretty good on defense. But either way, uh, I like this. It's a nice move. I liked it enough to give my game ball to UMHB coach Pete Fredenberg. Pat, your game ball was in the right state, but it's pretty obvious this week, and I'm giving it to offense. Ooh. I won't belabor. <laughs> yeah, we need some kind of like uh, grandiose classical music uh, coming in there. You've got five and a half minutes of uh, of interview with him, but when you go for 293 rushing yards, uh, 357 yards from scrimmage, eight touchdowns, including three really long ones, part of an 806 yard, 80 point day by your offense, you get the game ball. It's Harden Simmons running back to Quan Hempel. Now in the interview portion of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Jaquan Hemphill, the junior running back for Hardin-Simmons University, who uh, went for 357 yards of offense, tied the NCAA Division III record with eight touchdowns in the uh, big win by the Cowboys over East Texas Baptist by the score of 80-42. to 42. First of all, Jaquan, did you... I, at the point at which you came out of the game there about uh, the end of the third quarter, did you have any idea how many touchdowns exactly you had scored at that point? Uh, well, I knew it was eight, but um, I really had no record of, you know, 
I didn't know that, that was going to happen, so kind of I was happy for the moment. So happy now. So it's a a, a kind of a, it was a kind of night where basically everything for you guys was working on offense uh, early on in the game. You basically had four really quick short touchdowns at the end of uh, at the end of drives in the first uh, about the first twenty or so minutes of the game. How did the how the first uh, quarter or quarter and a half go there? Uh, it was good. Um, we had a, yeah, we have a goal uh, score first you know first quarter first half and everything. So uh, first drive is what we try to do, and that that's what we did, and we were able to do that, and we were able to do that, and uh, go up to first uh, get two scores on them. That's pretty much what uh, had us going with the momentum that we needed. So it was good. And then after that, you broke off, well, basically nothing but long ones, right? Uh, a 64-yard pass, 89-yard run to, to start the, the third quarter. Let's talk about that one for a second. You guys come out of the locker room. You're up 42-21, so you've got, the, you, you've got the game somewhat under control, even though it's a bit of a, a shootout, and you guys have the ball right away. So what's your thinking when, when you know you're getting the call on the first play of the second half? Uh, my thought process is obviously we need it to shut them out. Uh, as long as we can break their will, uh, that's what we have, will breakers. And as long as we can do that and, you know, keep the game under our control, uh, we knew we can go ahead and uh, take off when we needed to do, when we needed to take off and everything. So uh, it was honestly great for us. The, uh, I think the one that everybody's talking about uh, of all these touchdowns is the last one. You slip out of a tackle and um, you leave your shoe in the process and then scamper <laughs> off for uh, for 78 yards and a score. Uh what were you thinking when the when the shoe came off? Uh, when the shoe came off, I, I mean, I still my thought process was, you know, keep going. I can't go down now, uh, even without a shoe. I mean, we've had runbacks in, uh, in the past still before, so I know, why not me, right? So <laughs> now, um, now they just put turf in just recently. Did you uh, did you get a chance to play there when uh, when they had the when they had the dirt and the mud? <laughs> no, sir. I wasn't. Unfortunately, I was not. But I've heard about it. And- watched it, uh, televised it, and it looked a little rough. Yeah, but, I'd have, to, I'd have to imagine a 78-yard run uh, without a shoe uh, <laughs> on a grass field is a different thing. Uh, yes, sir, most likely. All right. Um, uh, uh, away from the, the kind of circus aspect of it, uh, how, does it uh, how does it feel, or how has it struck you now 24 hours later to, be, uh, to have your name going into the Division Three record book like that? Uh, honestly, still kind of unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> And it's something I haven't done before. I didn't really see myself doing it. I haven't myself done it as long as I can see myself doing it. And I was able to do so. Uh, and, you know, with my line and uh, my players here, um, they allow me to do so. So I, I just want to cherish this moment with them, honestly. Not a lot of time to dwell on this. Obviously, you have uh, a big challenge coming uh, coming to town this upcoming Saturday. Not only, of course, the number one team in the country, a big rival, the defending national champs, but that's a team that's got a still an amazing defense for you guys to face. Um, we're not worried about them. We're worried about us. Uh, what we have to do, and as long as we get what we need to be done, uh, we should be coming out on top. And I, I say that uh, wholeheartedly. Without giving too much away, what what is your what is your process? What are you going to be looking for? Or how do you sit down and kind of evaluate what uh, what might be available against a, a top notch defense coming up this week? Yeah, like I said, we just worry about us. Uh, what we need to do. Uh, I, I, put that in our coaches' hands, but they know what they're doing. They know what we need to do, so they tell us what to do, and we do it. All right, so you got back in at 4 a.m. from this uh, this long bus trip. What was the what was the mood like? Did, do people sleep after uh, after you get all fired up at a big win like that? 
uh, honestly, it was kind of hard to sleep for a while. Uh, we were up for a while, and people kind of, like, passed out as they went. So, I mean, obviously, everybody was a little tired, a little drained, but uh, it's a good win. You know, it's kind of uh, – we were just up talking about it for a while on social media for a little bit. So, and after a while, then we ended up going, going to sleep. After a while, I mean, it was five, <laughs> five whole hours. So, why not sleep when you can What's this rivalry like between you guys and Mary Harden Baylor? I know it's not the the crosstown rivalry that uh, you guys have had uh, and the school has had kind of in general with McMurray. It's a rivalry in which basically for the entire time that Mary Harden Baylor has had a football program, the winner of this game has gone on to win the conference uh, automatic bid to the playoffs. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, the past couple years we've been going back and forth with it, but uh, obviously this year we won a time to shine again. So, um, you know, our thought process, why not us? Why, can't, why, why, why shouldn't it be us? So, and we just got to focus on us and make it happen. For my riser, Keith, my team on the rise in the poll, I had to kind of go look back at my ballot to make sure, but indeed nobody took a big jump up the poll on my ballot this week. I've kind of done a bunch of my reevaluating of my top 25 ballot in recent weeks and it already kind of staked out my position on, say, Brockport, Whitworth, uh, teams that have become the chic picks of late, shall we say. One team I would spotlight, though, is a team I moved onto my ballot, and that's Christopher Newport. I feel the captains are worthy of a handful of points, a small amount of poll recognition after starting the season 4-1 and and thoroughly handling Rowan 30 to nothing on Saturday night. Now, of course, they follow that game with a trip to Salisbury. Also, quietly sitting with one loss, CNU's loss is a three-point loss to Frostburg, while Salisbury's is a three-point loss to 5-0, and but not yet ranked Albright. So one of these could be short-lived, and you know, actually, frankly, we're not really talking about Salisbury so much, but I just laid out the, uh, the Salisbury resume right there. Yeah, well, it's a huge week uh, this Saturday uh, for NJAC teams, although none of them are actually based in New Jersey. The, all, the, all the power teams are the new ones that join the conference. City. My riser, uh, Linfield. You know, I did I did some significant ballot shuffling this week with Whitworth, Wheaton, and Wisconsin Stout losing, but it uh, it started with the Wildcats, who had only had two results, as we mentioned earlier, including that twenty four to three loss to uh, to UMHB. So it didn't give voters a lot to work with. We know we knew from that game that Linfield wasn't number one, but where are they? Do they belong in the top 10, 15, 20? The 38-9 win against Whitworth wasn't quite as dominating as the score would suggest as the yardage was fairly even, and Linfield turned those two interceptions into return touchdowns, held Whitworth to field goal attempts on three other drives. But it did finally give us some information that we could work with as far as where to slot Linfield. And for me, it actually helped push them up the ballot. You could definitely say the Wildcats' defense is clutch and, and pretty good overall. And these are the sort of games that help us separate top 10 teams. And I feel confident now that Linfield, at least for a week, belongs pretty high up in that group. When you, when you look at everybody in the top 10, whether it's St. Thomas um, having the win over St. John's, um, North Central having a win over Illinois Wesleyan, Oshkosh now having a win over Whitewater, and John Carroll, although those don't look quite as good as they did on, on paper at the beginning of the season, almost every every team in the top 10 um, – Mary Hunt Baylor over Linfield. They all have impressive results that help us put, push them up the top 10. And that's why there's a group of teams that are sort of hovering or, you know, for maybe like nine to 15 don't necessarily have that, that great win yet. Uh, and then there are, there are a group of teams that, uh, that 
do have it or, or are starting to file those wins away, and you'll see them creep up the pole a little bit. I also bumped up uh, Wittenberg after a win against Denison. Again, each team needs to have, at this point in the season, probably at least one pretty pretty solid win. Um, but I still think the overall poll with the Tigers at 14 is pretty bullish on uh, on Wittenberg with uh, Wabash and DePaul yet to, to play. Uh, but Wittenberg's only allowing uh, less than 10 points a game, which bodes pretty well for those uh, upcoming NCAC clashes. For my slider this week, I kind of have my eyes early on Concordia Moorhead. Uh, the Cobbers had a fine opening to the season, but they lost number one quarterback Michael Herzog to an ankle in the win this weekend versus Gustavus Adolphus. And frankly, he struggled while he was in there, two for 10 passing. Uh, a freshman ended up finishing the game for the Cobbers, and that's not a good look coming into the game at St. Thomas next week. Copy editor moment. Did he lose him to an ankle or an ankle injury? Ah, see, I very specifically vagued. <laughs> I, you got to know I wouldn't do that accidentally. Uh, I just thought it was fun to point out, and and turns out it was uh, I should have left it alone. No, it's okay. It's it's staying in the pod. So slider for this week: what to do with Wheaton, Whitworth, and Wisconsin Stout were the big considerations a voter had to make. I think the voters got the first two right but aren't yet giving Stout enough credit for the St. Thomas win. Playing Platteville to a one-score game actually validated this St. Thomas result as more than a fluke and proves the Blue Devils can hang with elite teams. In any case, both Wheaton and Whitworth deserve to tumble the latter a little further because the loss was pretty convincing. Wheaton, because it gave, gave up the uh, go-ahead score with six seconds left, I think suffers a bit less and should tumble a, a little uh, not quite as far down the ballot especially when you you know you take into account they could easily won that game but voters rightfully have questions about where the thunder currently slot especially given uh, the the players they're missing luckily the CCIW slate will help us sort that all out and of course there's Johns Hopkins sliding all the way out of the poll uh, I hadn't voted for them all year and I'm thinking I remember you hadn't either and that makes the complete slide even more impressive because you know on your ballot on mine and on some others they had no more points to lose yeah, I wasn't in yet on Johns Hopkins. I was looking for uh, a result like this week's to, to tell me which way to go. And right now, again, there's so many uh, Centennial teams. I, I happen to not be uh, voting for any of them. But I think uh, there, are, there are some teams where the whole group might be in on, say, like Alfred, Whitworth, Johns Hopkins. But if, they, if you as an individual voter aren't quite in on them yet, you're right. You pointed out there's no points for that team to lose when they drop out. So there are some weeks where there are big losses nationally. And then I'll go and look at my ballot from the week before. And it doesn't actually affect my ballot all that much. And in the case of Johns Hopkins losing, that didn't do anything. I thought I was going to get that way with Wittenberg, but uh, we'll have more on that later. Uh, for my hidden highlight, mine was one of many great highlights from the 10 p.m. Eastern Time games on Saturday. Making the There's a true hidden potential in these games. Uh, with uh, one final play to go and sitting on the one-yard line, senior Joe Moody pushed, 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 pushed. That's that's the yep. word. That's the word for the week. Yep. Pushed across the goal line to lift Chapman to a 42-40 win over Pomona Pitzer. The Panthers had trailed by as many as 12 points in the fourth quarter before rallying for their first win of the season. And Keith, uh, not only hidden, so hidden that it's not the play of the week nominee from that game. Uh, a uh, a fantastic individual effort on a uh, touchdown catch by Chapman is uh, what made it. This was not a particularly spectacular-looking play. Uh, as I looked at it, it was just obviously the key one at the right time. Yeah, the the play of the week reel, uh, this is probably the best year 
in history for one-handed catches, yeah. uh, if if nothing else. There have been at least probably two every week where you're just like, yep, that one's pretty legit. That guy's super athletic. Or hey, there's no way he should have caught that. Um, you know, Speaking of the play of the week reel, you won't see a better two-point play than the one Juniata. That's another pronunciation um, nominee. Look at that. You won't see it. You won't see a better two-point play than the one Juniata ran to beat McDaniel, but you will see it since it's in the play of the week reel. So I can't go three weeks in a row with a hidden highlight that's not technically hidden. Yeah. Therefore, I point out this Rhodes Millsaps ending. The Lynx, after four, four Kyle Edmondson field goals, took a comfortable 19-7 advantage into the fourth quarter, and things didn't look so hot for the majors when they punted from the Rhodes 44-yard line with nine minutes left, but they got a quick stop and the ball back with good field position. A 29-yard play, key to touchdown drive, but their point after is blocked, so Rhodes still leads 19-13 with 5.26 left. Millsap's Malcolm Ben then picks off a third and three Rhodes pass two minutes later, and an un- but an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty leaves Millsap's with a third and 19. Millsap's, in the midst of completing five passes in a row, gets 11 yards to set up a fourth and eight. Obviously, late in the game, has to go for it at that point. They get 15 more. Then, not long after that, a 19-yard touchdown, game-tying touchdown pass. The PAT gives the majors the lead, and they hold on in the final 58 seconds to stun Rhodes. Keith, my double take, the result that made me turn my head, was Luther going to Buena Vista and winning, and doing so handily, 36-14. I expected Buena Vista to follow up last week's emotional win against Central with at least a, a stronger performance than this. Beavers definitely had trouble with Luther's triple option because six runners each gained 5.7 or more yards per carry. Really, uh, five of the six gained six yards or more. Ian Kuykendall, 28 carries for 178 yards, threw for 172 as well. And the Luther defense said two picks, seven tackles for loss, forced 23 incomplete passes in 38 attempts. Good, strong performances all around for the Norse, who are 3-1 and one and 2-0 and oh in the Iowa Conference. My double take was Dean 10, Nichols 3. First, if you only scroll the D3 scores casually, you look at your own team or your own conference, and then you scroll through the rest of the nation, and then you do a double take because who the heck is Dean? I don't blame you. Dean is a new to D3 school in Massachusetts, and it's uh, in the ECFC, located in Franklin, which is a stone's throw from Gillette Stadium and from the Rhode Island border. Nichols, on the other hand, is coming through a breakthrough six-win season after a long string of one and nine seasons, and they'd started this season 2-0. It was the Bulldogs, however, how, who won their second straight game while sending the Bison to their third loss in a row. And they only needed 36 passing yards and four third-down conversions to do it because their defense played so well, coming up with three turnovers. turnovers. So now both of the new D3s, including Brevard, have uh, ensured they won't go winless. And Dean plays fellow recent D3 and ECFC edition Alfred State next week, so a third win might be on the horizon. Dean not only new to Division Three, new to a four-year school status. They were a junior college, much like Alfred State, up until just a, a couple of years ago. For my stat of the week, Keith, I'm going to the state of Texas. Tex- oh, crap. Wait a minute. Uh, hang on. I got something else here. Uh, scratch that. Uh... No, no, we talked about that game. Okay, I'm going kicker. I'm going kicker. Watch this. Hunter Daly of Montclair State kicked four field goals in an 18-15 win versus Kane. Pronunciation 101. And no, the other six didn't come on two other field goals and didn't come on a missed point after, but on a missed two-point conversion. Kane had two of its points blocked, and each of them led to one of those field goals. And uh, for the record, Hunter Daly's field goals, 27, 38, 38, and 41 yards in that 18-15 win. 
Well, man, there are a hundred and some odd games every weekend, and I actually looked at that for uh, I don't know if it was for stat of the week, but I, I looked at that and I was like, wow, four four field goals, eighteen points. Uh, I was looking at it really for the dramatic finish, but it was not uh, it was not dramatic at all. For my stats of the week, I got a handful, but they're quick, so uh, you know how we do. Um, Springfield, they threw four passes, three of them for touchdowns. Meantime, uh, East Texas Baptist, the losing team in the uh, Harden-Simmons game earlier. And, and just as an aside here, I've been on the bad side of a Monday practice after a defense allows 50 points. I can't imagine where they even start after allowing 80. In any case, the Tigers didn't earn any accolades for defense, but they did have three 100-yard receivers and two more who had 72 yards receiving. So that's five guys with at least 70 yards receiving for East Texas Baptist in that same game. Harden Simmons rushed for 444 yards. Meantime, Adam Turr's alma mater, Washington and Lee, rushed for 444 and didn't throw an interception or get sacked. And they punted only once, but still managed to lose 45-42 to Emory and Henry. The Wasps capped a 17-play drive by scoring the game-winning touchdown with 11 seconds left. That's the final touchdown. You'll see the first touchdown in, the, in that game in the plays of the week reel. Keith, uh, quick misses. I think uh, this just should live on your plate the whole time. Okay, I'll read them all. Uh, so as you probably know, if you do more than just listen to the podcast, if you come by the site during the week, Friday is our day for uh, quick predictions and also uh, tells you where to look for the weekend, how to sort those 100 and 110 games, which ones you should keep an eye on besides the one your, your son or your friends play for or you play for. So uh, quick hits, quick misses. We take accountability to some degree, for the ones we get wrong. China, come on out and get you whooping. Uh, our guest, Gene Schatz, he missed by a, just a hair on predicting McDaniel to surpass its 2016 win total, given that incredible ending against Juniata. Christopher Newport Smothering mentioned earlier in the podcast of Rowan was anything but a letdown. Frank Rossi and Wittenberg very much did not get upset by Dennison in their 28-12 win over the key North Coast opponent, so that's a miss for you, Pat, and for Adam Turr. Yeah, even worse, Keith, it's kind of a double miss because uh, while I've been hesitant to join the very small group of people proclaiming the Big Reds machine hood, I haven't been voting for Wittenberg either. I had them, along with Johns Hopkins, on that list of teams that must prove their ranking worthiness to me based on this year, not 2016 or prior. Anyway, quick hits. Here's the hits. Uh, Frank went to the CCIW for game of the week instead of Whitworth Linfield or Whitewater Oshkosh. And hey, that was the game of those three that uh, came down to the last play of the game. Uh, Keith was the only one to pick a top 25 upset, calling her sinuses win over Johns Hopkins. Uh, Adam Turr called ETBU's letdown uh, one week after scoring 79. They allowed 80 in that 80 to 42 loss. And, and Ryan Tipps should get credit for calling that the game to watch at the end of the night as well. Our panel was split on Wittenberg and Dennison, and Gene, Frank, and Ryan chose the Tigers correctly. But that was a question about how many North Coast Athletic Conference teams would remain unbeaten at the end of the night. Everybody got DePauw correct. Everybody got Wabash correct. And it was the, uh, the toss-up where the two teams were playing head-to-head. We're up to our Twitter question, Keith, and uh, this week our question comes from Brian Todd at Brian P. Cornerman, at Brian P. Cornerman. And uh, the question is, which team has the best chance outside of the current top five to get to the championship game? I think it's a great question. At one point, I felt really good about Wheaton's chance to break through if the brackets broke right. 
uh, basically, if, if they could uh, have avoided Mount Union somehow, and, and the committees have done uh, pretty good jobs in, in recent seasons of mixing things up, especially when it comes to top teams. So I thought maybe this will be a year we see a CCIW team break through. But I think losing the five players, uh, at least for the time being, and the uh, the game to Illinois Wesley on this past Saturday puts them in a tough spot. You figure even if they do make the playoffs, they're nine and one. They may not be at home. They may not get a great draw. So. Uh, I don't feel as good about that one as I, as I may have um, the beginning of September. The top five, just to directly answer the question, we've got to rule out Harden-Simmons at number five, North Central's four, Oshkosh three, Mountain Union two, and Mary Harden-Baylor is one. That's the top five. So teams outside of that, how about St. Thomas? That St. Thomas and Mountain Union, they were my original picks back in kickoff, and I still think the Tommies have a shot even despite the uh, UW Stout loss, because of how physical they could be and how solid they are on defense. Those things were really on display in the win against St. John's. It's honestly, though, it's pretty wide open. I think if you're looking for an off-the-wall choice, I'm really intrigued by Brockport. Uh, Salem is probably a stretch for them, but they look through five weeks like they could be a problem in the postseason. Every week we'll take a question specifically for this podcast on Twitter, but don't ask us straight up who will win the national championship. That's basic. Thought of yours is a friend of mine. Wesley, a team we actually actually have not talked about so much over the course of the past few weeks. They've been working their way through the, the bottom teams in the New Jersey Athletic Conference, but they've been doing so in style, defensively. Three consecutive shutouts for the Wolverines this week. It was a 49-0 win over Southern Virginia. Of course, previously they had beaten uh, William Patterson by the score of 66-0 and TCNJ by the score of 33-0. So do the math. That's 148 nothing over the course of three weeks. These are the teams that are going to end up, uh, what are their 10 teams? So they're going to end up 8, 9, and 10 in the NJAC, but you know, at least they're not playing around with them. A thought of mine. Um, we talked a lot on previous podcasts about Occidental not playing against Pacific and the reasons that didn't happen and, and the reaction to it. So uh, the Tigers did play on Saturday, and the 72-13 loss to Redlands was not pretty. I don't know if anyone expected it to be, but to a man, I'd bet those Tigers would rather play and lose than to have not played at all. Tis better to have played and lost. Big day at Olivet on Saturday, but not a happy day for the Comets. Uh, last year, they beat Hope, kept the Flying Dutch from having an even more surprising season. But this year, on homecoming and in front of a crowd of 7,005, it was all Hope. Uh, Hope compiled six sacks, and Mason Oppel wasn't missing much at quarterback, going 17 or 22 for 205 yards and a 42-20 win that wasn't as close as the score suggests. But, Keith, this item basically started with the attendance, and then they built the rest around it. That was the thing that caught my eye first. <laughs> Interesting. Um Morrisville State they scored with 3.37 left to tie against Frank Rossi's alma mater union, except the Mustangs missed the point after and go on to lose 28-27. Pat, can you hit me with a sad trombone? I actually literally have a trombone back here in my office, if, believe it or not. Maybe we'll drop that in at some point, too. But I can't sad trombone. I, I can't trombone anything right now unless we're sad tromboning union schedule. The Trine defense recorded a school record six interceptions, which led to a total of five scores as the Thunder remained unbeaten with a 44-7 win at Concordia, Chicago. Two pick sixes for Trine as well. 
Uh, Concordia Chicago isn't one of the contenders in the neck, and Trine is 4-0 against it, uh, against teams that are combined 4-11. But hey, six picks. A lot of subtle things in that one. John Carroll, they got right by hanging 72 on Wilmington, including 28 points in a runaway second quarter. The Blue Streaks, the other semifinalists uh, from last season and one that's off to a little bit of a rough start this year. The Blue Streaks stroked 626 yards and had two defensive scores. I guess you could say that. Is that the, would that be a past participle or something? I just want to say streak stroked. Trinity opens its game story this way. The Trinity College Bantams took advantage of four Williams College turnovers to down the Eves 17-9. Dang, the real story here is that Trinity needed four Williams turnovers to beat the Eves by eight. Trinity scored its two touchdowns on a 12-yard drive and a 15-yard drive. That is a crap ton of futility. It, no, in fact, it's a metric crap ton of futility. Yeah, you can't really have just a regular one. They're always metric. Yeah. Just like nobody ever struggles. They always struggle mightily. I think in this case, struggled mightily is uh, is worthwhile. Yeah, the takeaway from that, though, is Williams does look to be improved. And is it year two now under Mark Raymond? Yep, year two. And All right. Two and one this season, which makes him two and nine. But, you know, it's two and one. Well, he was the one who orchestrated the turnaround at St. Lawrence. Uh in other Saint news, just for the record, Saint Scholastica has won four in a row, including Saturday's 14 to 7 defeat of Northwestern. That's four in a row since the 98-0 season open drubbing. 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 Put that on the words list. I'm the only one who's allowed to invent a word. I thought we established this. Well, who knew drubbing was coming? I mean, I didn't plan for that. Drubbing um, is coming. Yep. St. Scholastica, four wins in a row since losing to St. John's uh, in opening day. And St. Scholastica avenged that uh, defeat uh, by Northwestern last season, the one that kept the uh, the Saints out of the playoffs. I was going to say the Scholasticans because everybody else in Minnesota is named after their school. and so Wait, They'd be the Scollies. <laughs> the Scollies, that's right. Uh, you can't be the Scollies in Division Three. I'm sorry. Um, True. So well I'm played. So I'm standing in the slow group, group starting corral for the Twin Cities 10-mile run on Sunday morning. I've got my headphones in. I'm getting my brain into race mode. And I you know, kind of turn to my right. And who should I see but occasional podcast guest, kickoff writer, former St. John's beat writer Frank Rakowski. Uh, and he smoked me, of course. He finished almost 10 minutes ahead of me. But with the 10,416 people running the race Sunday morning, I end up standing next to someone who was on last week's podcast. What are the chances? There's only one other person besides you and me that was on last week's podcast. I guess unless Glenn Caruso was uh, going to run the the ten mile, or Brian Stein Sapir. What do we got coming up next week? Well, it's a uh, another really good week. Now that we get to the meat of the season and conference schedules, and games have a lot riding on them. Starts right at the top. Number one, Mary Harden Baylor at number five, Harden Simmons. Talked a little bit about that one earlier. Didn't talk about this one at all, but it's a huge game, and really the first time we'll uh, we'll peek in really closely at number two, Mount Union. They're at number 21, Heidelberg, who's been an offensive dynamo so far. Number 20, Concordia Moorhead at number six, St. Thomas. Um, St. Thomas with a loss already, can't afford to take another one. Concordia Moorhead, every year feel like they're so close. Uh, this is the, this is their chance to, uh, to to score a big one against St. Thomas. Number 10, Delaware Valley at Albright, Battle of Mac unbeatens. And, uh, and Albright, as you mentioned, uh, just about to creep into the poll. Number 19, Wesley at number 11, Frostburg State. And then that CNU-Salisbury matchup that you mentioned earlier. All the good NJAC teams are the ones outside of New Jersey. 
Jack City. That's Centennial. We talked about it. It's Franklin and Marshall at Johns Hopkins and then Ursinus at Muhlenberg next week. So we'll start to sort out the Centennial a little bit. Upstart, George Fox at Whitworth, which dropped to number 22 in the poll after the loss to Linfield. That could be a pretty good one next week, potentially for second place in the NWC. Number 16, Washington Jefferson at Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon, by the way, 5-0? and 4-0, 5-0. 5-0. It's two games in one calendar week for the Presidents. Uh, as we mentioned in the Teal game, watch how they uh, manage their snap counts if they get ahead in that one. Number 23, UW Stout at UW Whitewater. Told you it wouldn't be the last time we mentioned them. Denison, coming off the Wittenberg loss. Uh, they get to go to uh, number 25, Wabash, uh, right away. So uh, we'll find out what uh, what Kanan pronounced his last name for him. Cabelli. <laughs> Cabelli? The Denison star quarterback. We'll find out what uh, what he's made of it and see if the rest of the Big Red can bounce back against the Little Giants. Mostly water. Mm. That was way too scientific for this podcast. Got to keep got to keep the audience in mind. Hey man, this is Division Three. They all are prominent students as well as athletes. I definitely set you up for that one. That was well played, Middlebury. Speaking of smart people, uh, at Amherst, both of them are three and zero uh, and in front early, along with uh, Trinity in the NESCAC, and then Wartburg, who we've barely mentioned but is undefeated. Uh, they're at Central next week, and then. Remember the long time we always play this game, like what would be the, the if you could just set up any goofy matchup with, between any D3 teams like Plymouth State versus Rockford in the Plymouth Rock game. Ah. Uh, we got a couple of fun sounding matchups coming up this week. Wash, Washington U of St. Louis is at Washington Lee and Pacific Lutheran is at Pacific. And uh, those are games that we'll be looking forward to next week. But uh, as for us, this was Around the Nation podcast number 178 for the week of October 2nd, 2017. Thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That will help other football fans find it. And actually, I'm uh, particularly grateful to a, a couple of recent reviews that we've gotten we really appreciate that uh, a couple of people have really taken this to heart thanks bro dog 99 thanks cc for him 2804 i don't know if that's carol college or centennial conference or i don't know credit card or something but we really appreciate that executive christ producer, church christ what that was my guess christ church okay Sorry. that's all right never mind is that like the uh like the bbc show i don't know I just said for him cc uh never mind oh Oh, oh, I see. I could see that. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh and any sound effect I can find for free on YouTube. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Jaquan Hemphill and Sports Information Director Chad Grubbs of Hardin-Simmons for their time on this edition of our show. And of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. Thanks to our sponsor in this week's podcast, FanRays. Go visit them at thefanrays.com. And you can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know that? You can join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook. Yes. Also, not on Friendster and not on... MySpace. I was going to say Squarespace because I'm all in podcast mode. Thank you for that. 
That's exactly what I was trying to get. We have all sorts of content new to D3Football.com each week, so look for the D3Football.com Play of the Week on Monday, Around the Region columns on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, Adam Turr's Around the Nation column on Thursday, our weekly Quick Hits predictions on Friday, and wall-to-wall-to-wall-to-wall game coverage on Saturdays, Snap Judgments from Adam Turr on Sunday morning, and a new Top 25 that you can all complain about. I told you, I have a freaking trombone. That's true. I mean, what's the point of having it if you don't play it every five, ten years? Well, I, I, I didn't really think he was going to do it.